0: Well, hello, Redeemer. Pastor Carl Santos here. So glad to be bringing this midweek message to you on Revelation 19. The sermon title is Love Story. So let me read for you chapter 19 of Revelation. It's got 24 verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God and for his judge for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants once more they cried out hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped god who is seated on the throne saying amen hallelujah and from the throne came a voice saying Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of god then i fell down at his feet and worshipped him sorry to worship him but he said to me you must not do that i am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood There's a songwriter named Chris Rice, and in one of his songs, he has this line, The harmony is building, so the chorus can't be too far away. Now, what Rice means is, uh, you know the chorus, the big crescendo of a song is coming when certain things happen in the song. Then, in, in his case, it's the harmony starts to build. And here as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, you're seeing just that you're seeing the crescendo is coming the finale is near the end is at hand and as a result there's joy and there's worship here for this chapter and in the past in the last chapter actually chapters 17 and 18 what we saw was the defeat and the sentencing of babylon babylon being that spirit that corrupted power in the world that dominates our cities and seduces people away from god and now here in chapter 19 there's two parts to this uh, chapter and basically they're two different feasts the first one in verses 1 to 10 are the wedding feast of the lamb and that is for all those people who are saved by god it's funny it says um it's the it's for all those who are invited but of course you and i know that most of the world will be invited to the feast but very few will respond and come So what it seems to be saying, consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation, is that although humans are responsible for responding to the gospel, very few do unless, none do, unless God first seduces them, God first woos them and draws them to himself. And so all those who God saves are those who come to the wedding feast. And then, but the second part of this chapter, verses 11 to 21, the supper of God, is much more grim It's a grim feast that's held for those who were not saved by God. And so as we look at this passage, to help you see the richness of it, I'm going to try to focus on what the chapter tells us about God and what difference it makes for us. Okay, So we're going to see, let's talk about God and what he's doing. And what we're going to look at specifically is what has God done, what is he doing, and what will he do? Okay? And through that, hopefully we'll get to see some clarity in this chapter. So, first, what has God done? Well, first thing you note when, read, when you read this is how incredible it is that the word hallelujah shows up. In fact, I'm not sure if you knew. I basically had forgotten this until I was studying and researching again this chapter. But the word hallelujah only appears four times in the entire New Testament, and all four of those uses is right here in chapter 19. And so it's very unique, and and you've hopefully learned this over the couple of years (laughs) with me, is that when the Bible does something like this, when it introduces words in strategic moments, when it does something seemingly out of the ordinary, we're meant to pay attention. And so When you see the word hallelujah popping up over and over again, my inclination, and that of many people before me, is to say, well, where is this word elsewhere in scripture? Where does it pop up? Because it feels like it's everywhere. But it's really not. And one of the places you see it the most concentrated is in what are called the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118. Now those Psalms are called the Hallel Psalms because Hallelujah is a compound word made up of two different words, arguably three, but two, which says praise, you should praise or you praise Yahweh. So Hallel, Hallelu is to uh, pray, you praise. And then Yah is the short form for Yahweh. And so it means everybody should praise God. And these that word is repeated over and says praise the lord in the english translations in those psalms and um, the reason those are called the Hallel psalms is not just because that shows up but because those psalms were used at a very specific time in the life and liturgy and rhythm of israelite life so the Hallel psalms were the ones that were uh, read and sung especially during the passover to celebrate uh, something very specifically in fact if you read them uh, you'll you'll begin to notice something interesting that one of the common themes that th- runs through them is egypt and the exodus from egypt so it's not surprising that at the passover they sing these psalms because the the psalms celebrate the past exodus from slavery freedom from slavery But they also look ahead to the future freedom from slavery that would come in the form of the Messiah. And so uh, traditionally, you would sing Psalm 113 and 14 before the meal, the Passover meal, and then 115 to 118 would be sung after the meal. So in Matthew 26, verse 30, when it says that Jesus, after having the Lord's Supper, um, ate, or sorry, he sung a psalm, it's one of these three psalms or four psalms, 115 to 118. And so when we see hallelujah introduced to us at chapter 19 it isn't by accident we are being told that it is being sung by the multitudes the saints and the angels as a recognition of this new and final and perfect exodus this this salvation from sin and decay and corruption but there's even more going on see because the language of salvation all through the old testament and even into the new is often couched in the language of marriage and this is important because god saves us but he's also married us and let me just walk through this and of course you see the marriage of the lamb the supper of the uh, marriage supper of the lamb here in this chapter but let's just talk a little bit about marriage and god's marriage to israel and the people of god throughout the bible let me just do a quick survey of that so first it's a very common thing in the Old Testament for, for for a prophet or for a writer to speak of God as the husband of Israel. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, "For your maker is your husband; the Lord of hosts is his name." Hosea 2:19, God himself says, "And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you, sorry, betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy." And that's just two. There's many other references. So God is continually referring to himself as the husband to Israel, and Israel, by proxy, to be the bride of God. Now, let's understand a little bit about the betrothal process in ancient Israel. So when a couple wanted to get married, the man was usually in the driver's seat, if you want to use that language. And here's what would happen. A man would often co- go with his best man, you know, one of his buddies, and they would visit the prospective bride's father. They'd go to visit, and they would say, "Okay, what is the the marriage price? What is the purchase price for the for your daughter?" And that's the dowry. And that language is not accidental. The bride was purchased by the man for a price, and they would haggle over this and and work out a, a final price. And once that was determined, they would seal a covenant together for the marriage. And what would happen is they would agree, and then the bride herself would be brought into the room, and they would seal this new covenant, quite literally, with a glass of wine, a cup of wine. They would drink wine and seal this new covenant. And then, at that point, even if there is no consummation, even if they're a year or more away from being actually living in the same home and starting their life together, at this point, if the man was to die, the woman would be considered a widow, and if they wanted to break up this betrothal they'd have to seek a formal divorce that's how binding this engagement was in the ancient world and so once that is done the groom then makes takes leave and he walks away he leaves the father of the bride and the bride and he goes away for a time to prepare a place to prepare a home for his new bride and usually that was a prepare place in the house or on the property of his father Because that's just the way this uh, communal family lifestyle was in the ancient world. So he'd go away for a while uh, in this, you know, in this indistinct period of time. Could be longer, could be shorter. But he'd prepare a place for them. And then, once it was done, the groom would go back and take his wife. That language was intentional. He would take the woman to be his wife, which we still use in our modern marriage ceremonies. Do you take this man? Do you take this woman? And here's the interesting part. The time when the man would go to retrieve his wife was often unknown or obscure. Now, she might know the day when he was going to come and when the marriage would be finalized. However, she wouldn't usually know the time, and that was intentional. So what the groom would do is he'd get his buddies together, and they would get all prepared, and then they would eventually make their way to the bride's home to retrieve her, to get her, to take her, and to seal the marriage. But by not sharing the exact time when he was going to show up. It was actually incredibly, I mean, nerve-wracking, I'm sure, for the bride. But it builds the anticipation. The bride knew it was going to be at some point today, but she didn't know exactly. So she had to get ready early and be ready when he came. So she would be in, in anticipation. Her and her bridesmaids and the and the maidens would be looking out the window. They'd be excited. They'd be singing. They'd be ready. Um, and the anticipation would build. And sometimes I, I remember reading that just to be a bit of a stinker, these men wouldn't show up until midnight, You know, right until, at the last hour. But it was all meant to be part of this. Uh, this, this—I want to say—a game, but part of the ritual, and, and to build anticipation and excitement and joy, and key that the woman the whole time would have to be prepared, and then once. The bridegroom arrived he would arrive with shouts Matthew 25 speaks about this he would come and say here is the bridegroom come out to meet him and uh, with those shouts the woman would come out with a lamp if it was at night with her with her bridesmaids and then the words of completion would be exchanged I take you and so on and then once that was done they would parade to his father's house where there would be guests waiting in their best clothes for the party to begin now does that sound familiar because it should, because this imagery of a wedding is riddled all through the Old and New Testaments, especially in the ministry of Christ. And Jesus comes, and when he comes, there is continuity, because it's not just the Old Testament that speaks of God being the husband to Israel, but it's almost like without explaining it or justifying it, the New Testament assumes that Jesus is now the husband of the church, as if Jesus is God, the husband to the people of God. And he's seamlessly referred to as the husband of the church. And so you see this especially clearly when you look at the, set, the stories in the Bible that center around wells, those holes in the ground where water comes out of. So in you know these stories. If you're a Christian, you're certainly familiar with these stories in Genesis 24, 29, um, and in John 4 as well. When, uh, well, in the Old Testament, you know these stories. Abraham sends servants to find a wife for his son Isaac. And they go to a well, and they find a woman at the well. And then Isaac, in turn, will send servants to find a wife for his son, Jacob, at a well. And then it's no accident then that in John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself at a well with a woman. Now let me explain something here. There's some similarities between all of these stories that scholars have a long time pointed out. First, there is these loose but sometimes direct similarities like this the man travels or his servants travel to a foreign land to find a wife jesus goes to samaria they meet a girl at the well a young girl a woman whatever it is at the well somehow water is drawn and water is the topic of conversation of course that happens in all of them then invariably the maiden rushes home to bring news of the stranger at the well again happens in all the stories lastly a betrothal is normally arranged usually after being invited to a meal and to stay now here's where things move a little bit different for the john story of jesus at the well and i am not suggesting like the you know the da vinci code that jesus is marrying the woman at the well and he actually had a family that's not what we're saying what i am saying however is that it is not by accident that jesus goes to a well encounters a woman and the woman there is a sinner and a foreigner and that he comes to announce himself all through the new testament as a man who has come as the as god who has come the son of god who has come to to bring the gentile sinful world into the fold into the people of god he has come to marry the world to himself and so we see there's a continuity here that god not only saves us a la exodus and from our sin at the cross but he marries us And binds us to him and when then this story continues after John 4 and as you read the story in, in the Gospels something more interesting happens he goes to the Last Supper and there what does he say he tells the disciples I'm going to prepare a place I'm going to prepare a place for you you can't come with me but don't worry I'll come back and to prove he's going to come back he takes a cup and he seals a new covenant with them this marriage is sealed And it's as good as gold. It's as good as finished when it's sealed. And so, the first point, what has he done? He has saved us and married us to himself. That's the first point. Second thing we see here is what God is doing. Now, it's fascinating what's written in chapter 19 here in verses 7 to 8. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Scholars have always been asking, Christians ask, who does the work? So think about this. When the bridegroom, when the man goes away to prepare a place, the bride is left to prepare herself for her groom. And Revelation says this has been given to her. She's given the right and the participation in preparing herself for the wedding. Now, who does the work? What is what is happening in this preparation? Because if the preparation is, for us as Christians, is our good deeds, our work, our service, our obedience, all these things. Well, what's going on here? And I think the way to understand how we prepare as brides for our king, for our groom, is found in Ezekiel verses, uh, chapter 16, verse 6 to 14. Let me read that to you, and then I'll walk through it quickly. And when I passed you, this is God speaking to Israel, and when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live, says it twice. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare when i passed you again and saw you behold you were at the age for love and i spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness i made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the lord god and you became mine then i bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil i clothed you also and embroidered uh, sorry with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather i wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and i adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and i put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk embroidered cloth and embroidered cloth you ate fine flour and honey and oil you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that i had bestowed on you declares the lord god now what do we make of this um when we look at if you go through this passage and you underline the i statements and you try to see what was god doing and what was israel doing in this betrothal ceremony in this marriage ceremony as this love story unfolded from between god and israel Who is doing what? And you see something interesting. Let me look at, just say those I statements. God says, I passed by and saw you. I saw you in your blood and said, live. I made you flourish. I passed by you and saw you. Meaning, of course, they didn't look at him. They didn't, Israel didn't choose God. God chose him, them first. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. I entered into a covenant with you. I bathed you, I anointed you, I clothed you, I covered you, I adorned you, I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a crown on your head. I, oh sorry, you ate ate fine flour and honey and oil and so on. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Your renown went forth because it was the splendor that I had bestowed on you. And so when we look and see who is preparing us for this wedding, when he means prepare the, the, the bride, the church, us believers, prepare ourselves for our groom, he's talking about sanctification. We are deserving of marriage because he has married us, but we're not fit for marriage. So he is making us suitable brides for himself. So yes, we have to, we have a role to play, which I'll talk in a minute. But understand, he prepares his bride for himself. He does the work. And now, here's the interesting part. Israel has no part, it seems, in their wedding preparations in Ezekiel, but they do. He says, I'm doing all of this. And yet, he says, but you do have a part in in Revelation. And our role is to submit to him in that classic illustration of, in the same way, clay submits to the hands of the potter. It is passive, oftentimes. Um, Clay is never active, I suppose, though we are at times, but generally passive. That it's the hands of the potter that shape the clay. And so it is for us. God works in us, in our lives, to prepare us to be a suitable brides for himself. And the way we participate, the way we clothe ourselves, what he means, is it's the way we submit to the, 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 the pressing and the pushing and the manipulation of the hands of the potter. So when suffering comes to us from the potter, Um, it is we we look at it and we endure it and we look at it from the lens of saying we trust the potter and how can we learn from this to become more like him we study scripture deeply and i hope redeemer is a church that becomes and is known for that we study deeply the word of god because we want to become like him that's us preparing ourselves for him we serve the world and one another dutifully faithfully and extravagantly and generously Because we are trying to become more like him and he is shaping us through our service We worship with exuberance and joy Because we want to become more like him and we know he shapes us in worship We submit to community We get together with one another people who we disagree with at times people who are nothing like us because we know it's through community That we see the fullness of god's grace and mercy to us and to the world And he shapes us through our friendships and through our relationships and so he has saved us, he betrothed us, and he is making us the bride we should be. And our job is to submit to that process. Notice this, that when you got married, if you're a woman anyway, um, you're as a bride, you don't get ready and prepare for the wedding day in order to win the groom. Because the wedding's already done. It's settled, it's settled, he's going to marry you. The reason you prepare and get yourself looking as beautiful as you can is because exactly because the wedding is already settled now what you want to do is you want to please your groom you want to be the you want to see that when you walk down the aisle he smiles that he almost laughs with joy that he cries like a little baby like i did at my wedding and that's what you want and that's a good thing that you want to present yourself as acceptable beautiful and understand what i mean when i say acceptable i mean you want to present yourself as lovingly and as beautifully and as astonishingly and as marvelously to your husband as possible that's what you want to do out of gratitude because you love him so much and that is exactly what you and i are called to do for god that we we prepare ourselves for the wedding feast of the lamb to please and delight christ that's what we do we give ourselves over to the work of preparation purely to please to please our groom not to win his favor. His favor is already won by his own love, by his own grace. And so that's what he is doing. He is making us the bride he wants us to be, and we should be, and that would make us happiest. So that's what he is doing. Now, what is he going to do? Well, this is in some ways the simplest part. He's going to come. He'll return And this is the great joy. We know he will return and he will complete the good work. He starts a work in us at salvation to make us more like him and to make us a suitable bride for him. And we know he's going to finish that work. We know he's going to come because the betrothal is done and he's not going to turn back on his word. If Christ didn't abandon you on the cross in the midst of agony, he's not going to abandon you now and so the this this passage is filled with joy and and, and praise and hallelujahs um, because the wedding day has come i mean look at those ac- uh, uh, the exclamations it's and when you use the word hallelujah hallelujah is not just an expression of praise that you say when you're filled with joy but it's also an invitation praise it's it's an emphatic term in hebrew and it says praise him praise god like and it's an invitation you should praise god but it's also a command from god we must praise him and we rejoice as as the church as the bride of christ because uh, that day is coming and here in revelation 19 it's it's depicted as having come so they're rejoicing the groom has come for his bride and she can't contain her joy but there's this ominous side and that's the last 10 verses or so um, that talk about this other supper the supper of god which is far more grim and the reason they're both in the same chapter is because there are two feasts that are two sides of the same coin. At the end of all things, there will be two feasts, one for those who have been invited and saved by God and those who have not been and who have rejected God. And the second one is grim, but it's justice for those who presumably not invited and those who didn't turn up or whatever way you want to look at that. See, judgment comes first in this passage to the beast, So for those who are not at the wedding feast, God has judgment for them. And first it says he takes the two beasts that we encountered in chapter 14 and he tosses them into the lake of fire for eternal suffering. But it's not just them. It's also all those who align themselves with the beast and they are also judged. And it is, there is a feast, but is a feast where they are the main course. And I'm not saying that to sound flippant, but that's the grim reality that the judgment is just they have feasted on blood and on the innocent and now they will be the main course for those who do the same which are these birds of prey it's terrible it's a horrible judgment but it is a just judgment and so the response then what is the response to this well revelation all through the book and right to the very last words of the book demand a choice Revelation and John and Jesus through John is constantly presenting us with a choice between uh, two different things and he wants us to make a decision. That's the crux of the book. Is it the lamb or the dragon? Is it the lamb or 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 Babylon or the beast? Is it light or is it dark? Is it the throne or the pit? Is it faithfulness to the gospel or compromise? Is it the wedding feast or is it this grim supper of God? And so when you're presented with this, there's two things we have to at least say as we close the first one is if you're a skeptic the call is to repent if you're not a christian if you're on the fence this is a clear invitation this is the invitation of god coming through the word that you're hearing and reading and not from carl though i'm the one certainly inviting you because i'm a guy who has an invitation as a Christian. I was invited and I'm allowed to bring a plus 1, plus 2, plus 3. And and so I invite as many as I can to come. And this is an invitation to you if you're a skeptic. Come. The invitation is open. Accept it and you'll find that you gave up nothing and gained everything by coming. That you didn't lose yourself, but that you gained yourself. So that's the invitation to the skeptic. Now if you're a Christian, I think this is riddled with encouragements and let me just say those quickly and that's where we'll close first encouragement god is committed as i said earlier he will finish the good work that he started in you he won't leave you orphaned he will return for you so whatever else comes in your life you know that his love for you is not contingent upon your earning a place he has married you he is coming to claim you and and he's betrothed you he's coming to marry you formally you can relax in that peace and joy and not feel like you have to earn his love you've got it already and you did nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing to lose it if you are a Christian. Second thing, in this life, one of the things you hear in this passage is this. Suffering is not a sign of God's anger for the Christian. So remember Ezekiel. God's posture towards his bride is that he loves her. He adorns her, blesses her, washes her, cleanses her, builds her up, and so on. So any evil that, that comes to us as believers in this life, we can know cannot come from his anger he has no anger left for those who trust his son he will never allow evil to be the, to be meaningless for you as a christian or to only be for your ill and here's where we see those lovely words of joseph in exodus 50 verse 20 coming to life when his brothers repent because they realized they had wronged their brother and he says to them what you intended for ill god is intended for good and this is exactly what god is doing in the life of the christian He is taking all those sins, all those sufferings, all the struggles that we have. And although the enemy and people around us may have intended them for ill, because God loves us and he is committed to us as his bride, he is turning those sufferings and those ill things into good for our sake. That's, we can know that. The third encouragement, discipleship is what faithful Christians do. Let me explain god is preparing his bride and doing so through the spirit and through basic christian disciplines of study suffering service worship uh, community and if that's the case we are engaged to christ now and we prepare ourselves for marriage with faithful submission to his commands so every time we obey his word we show fidelity to god we declare clearly every time we do that with our lives that we are loyal to our husband and so by submitting to discipline, by becoming disciples and studying and chasing after God and praying and loving our neighbor, what we're doing is we are showing faithfulness to our husband. So discipleship is no longer just something you do if you've got free time or, you know, for those, it's for those religious types. No, no. Discipleship is a sign and the work that faithful people do to honor their husband. It is part of becoming a suitable bride. That's an important thing and attached to that is the next encouragement sort of that that sin is what unfaithful people do if we are married to christ it means that when we trust in something other than our husband to give us the love and the value and the security we need we're committing adultery and so sin isn't just some little uh uh, slip up it's not just some little foible god isn't taking it overly seriously when we sin sin is adultery It's incredibly serious. And that's why, especially all through Scripture, certainly here at Redeemer, we take seriously sin. It's a big deal. And we also take discipleship seriously because it's a big deal. These are the signs of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, fidelity and infidelity, adultery and loyalty to our king, to our husband. And lastly, let me say this. It's going to sound harsh maybe, but it shouldn't be. We need to take responsibility for our own actions as brides. So remember, we're being called in this passage to remember that we are engaged. Do you remember if you were, when you were engaged, if you had that privilege? Do you remember how it didn't matter what that person asked for? You were always available. You always made time for him or her. Always. Didn't matter if they called you at three in the morning. You answered that phone call. They needed a ride. You drove. They needed money. You gave it to them. You'd miss work. You'd do anything you could to be with them because you valued them. And the longer we live as Christians, the harder it is to value Christ like that. And I often hear people, you know, as a pastor, I hear people who say, I don't have the time to serve. I don't have the time to witness or to go to study and to study my, the Bible or to pray. And listen, like I said, you don't earn your salvation by behaving this way, by by discipling, by pressing into God. But you do show that you love your groom when you prepare for him. Okay? And It is vital that we say, I will make room to prepare for my groom. And when people say, you know, I don't have enough time, I'm sorry. Uh, And I say this to myself. The truth is you have time. You just don't want to make the time. Or you don't know how to make time, maybe. But disciples aren't content with living in a way that they neglect their duties and their groom and neglect preparations for the wedding there are people who seek to find ways to make time for that because they value it and i know that sounds convicting and it's kind of meant to be we should value our king value our groom and if you have a life where you think you know i just don't have the time for it then talk to somebody help we can help We try to figure these things out because the key is we need to make time to be with our king so with that let me close with prayer father thank you for this church Thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouraging call and reminder that you are coming back for us. Lord, I know uh, life is hard. It's busy. Um, I don't, we're not here to shame anybody into th- feeling that they should be serving more or, or giving more or spending more time in prayer. And yet, Lord, we do want to encourage them to do those things. And I pray that by your spirit, the power and the presence of your spirit, you would help people. To find time help them discipline their lives help us all myself included to do this lord not to earn your salvation to earn your love because we already have it but to show our gratitude for it lord let us become the bride you have made us to be we, we we pray that we would be better at submitting to the promptings of your spirit that we would be more inclined to pray more inclined to study and to love one another god to sacrifice the things that the world calls good and which are good sometimes For the better good which is to serve you lord help us miserable sinners though we are lord love us shape us have mercy on us and best of all come soon father and claim us and we ask this in jesus name amen